the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And if you're wondering why I say them in that order, it's because that's the order in which they joined as co-hosts on the podcast. Um, So uh, we have a very special episode for you today. I'm really thrilled to have my good friend Jonathan Greer uh, on the podcast for the first time. And uh, he's co-edited a really important, a big volume on the historical context of the Bible. And Jonathan's a very rare kind of scholar. Uh, not only is he a wonderful guy, but he also uh, is uh, is able to do really good biblical uh, academic study. He is invested as an archaeologist, and he's a person of faith. And so bringing those things together, there aren't many people who do that or who do it well, and he's one of them. So uh, I, I commend him to you and the project he's been working on. Um, also, I just want to remind you, if you haven't had the chance to give us a ratings uh, a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, we'd appreciate that. And finally, if you could, um, if you don't get a chance to give us a rating, if you could just write to your congressperson, um, or if you're not in the United States, maybe you're a member of parliament, or if you're not in a democracy, whoever you, know, you want to contact um, please do so. We'd really appreciate that. Um, and uh, to tell them about OnScript, of course. and Or maybe write them a letter or do both. Phone the office, write a letter, go visit them in person. Um, because that's the only way we're going to get things done is is if you do that. So so take the time. Um, maybe you don't have time to give us a ratings on iTunes, but maybe you do have, a time, have the time to write them a letter. Um, and we'd really appreciate that. Okay, that's enough on that. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Matt Lynch here today with Jonathan Greer. Jonathan is Associate Professor of Old Testament and Director of the Hesse Memorial Archaeological Laboratory at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. In addition to many articles on Bible and archaeology, Jonathan is the author of Dinner at Dan, Biblical and Archaeological Evidence for Sacred Feasts at Iron Age to Tell Dan and Their Significance. He's also co-edited with John Hilbert and John Walton, a fantastic edited volume that we're going to discuss today. It's called Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament, Cultural, Social, and Historical Context, published by Baker Academic in 2018. Jonathan, welcome to OnScript. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, I first got to know you when you and your family were um, in Israel when we spent uh, time at the the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research in Jerusalem back in, was that 2011, 2010? Yeah, something like that. Somewhere there, (laughs) yeah. Um, And I had, going into that, I had zero prior archaeological experience, and suddenly I was thrown in the deep end with all these archaeologists like yourself. Um, and it was wonderful. I, I absolutely loved it, and I learned so much, um, and also ate a lot of really good food, as you probably remember. Hisham is, is quite the cook. Um, so, so I got into archaeology. I mean, I was interested in it before that at a sort of reading and theoretical level, um, but didn't actually do any 
I didn't go on a dig until the next year. Um, well, I did, I did the Temple Mount sifting project for, for a day or two. Um, no, one day with, with, uh, a one-year-old son, which is interesting. Um, so, so when did you first get interested in archaeology um, and how it relates to the Bible? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in New England, uh, son of a preacher man, congregational pastor outside of Boston, and uh, became interested in ancient things from an early time frame. Um, but it was really in the early 80s. I was a junior high kid, and there was this perfect storm of factors where my dad got a sabbatical and he took the whole family and we went to Jerusalem uh, for oh. four months. So here I am, 12 years old, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark had just come out and here I am uh, in oh, Jerusalem. Wow. So I set out to exploring my backyard uh, I was also poring over uh, issues of biblical archaeology review that was uh, becoming very popular in the in the early 80s, and my dad mm-hmm. uh, subscribed to that. And so I never found the the lost ark. Uh, I did find a, a Roman aqueduct and started mapping it, uh, <laughs> uh, but I had a lot of fun accompanying my dad on on field studies, and that kind of uh, wet my appetite for this intersection of the Bible and material culture. Uh, and then I kind of went away from it a little bit. Um, in college, I went to Messiah College, a small liberal arts uh, Christian school in Pennsylvania. Uh, had a visiting professor, uh, Bryant Wood, uh, for one Jan term, got back into archaeology a little bit, uh, and then spent a, a Jan term semester in uh, back in the land at Tantour Ecumenical Institute and traveled through the land as part of my undergrad experience. Um, but it was really in seminary that that I began to have a, a very serious uh, professional interest in the Bible and archaeology. Uh, I did two degrees at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and mm-hmm. wrote an MA thesis with Gary Pratico. Uh, Doug Stewart and Gordon Hugenberger were also very influential in my education there at uh, Gordon-Conwell. But I also, um, Gordon-Conwell was part of the Boston Theological Institute so we could take courses at any of the the Boston schools. So I took every archaeology course that Larry Steger offered at Harvard, oh, and really? uh, that that really um, solidified my interest. Got to do pottery seminars in the uh, uh, museum of the Semitic uh, Semitic Museum basement. A uh, lot of fun. Uh, and then I also did a uh, full semester at Jerusalem University College. Uh, I got to tag along with my wife, who won a big fellowship when she graduated from Gordon-Conwell. For preaching, and, right? That's right, for preaching. Yeah. And yep. uh, so I got to do some work there uh, toward one of my uh, degrees at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, and uh, then we went from there to um, teach in Zimbabwe, Africa for a couple of years, uh, and then came back for PhD studies um, at uh, Penn State, and was advised by B. Halpern and Gary Knoppers 
who both modeled an intersection of text and archaeology. And uh, B introduced me to, to Brian Hesse, uh, under whom I trained for animal bone uh, archaeology, zoo archaeology. Also had the, the privilege of doing Egyptology with Don Redford and um, Assyriology with Gonzalo Rubio. Uh, so I got this very, I think, well-rounded education with archaeology, ancient Near Eastern history, um, text, textual studies, uh, then had some wonderful field experiences um, with Ami Mazar at, at Rehov and started working at that point on the Tel Dan project with David Alan and Yifat Therani. Uh, and then the time at the Albright where I met you mm -hmm. and had exposure was, to a lot Was that of a real turning scholars. point then, meeting me? <laughs> Absolutely. Here it okay, resulted yeah. in this interview. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and a friendship as well. Yeah. So no, but it was fun. You know, the Albright was a special place. You know, yeah. we had uh Mark Smith and Oded Borowski there and Andrea Berlin and it was a that was a wonderful year of uh mixing it up with both uh textual scholars and archaeologists and uh it was it was a very, very important uh, part and it also allowed me to really buckle down on dissertation writing, which was fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think we were across from each other many times, many uh, late evenings in the library there at the, at the institute. Um, I, I like that library because they let you bring coffee in. You know, that was a that was a real bonus. Um, so, uh, and then you went uh, and took the job at uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary at Cornerstone University. And and you set up uh, this uh, archaeological institute. Do you want to, or um, what is it, the archaeological uh, um, laboratory? Yeah. Do you want to just explain what that is a little bit and its significance? Well, a uh, very tragic thing that happened with my uh, dissertation right before my defense, uh, Brian Hesse passed away, and... Um, with with that, as I was working on the Tel Dan material, I inherited the the stewardship of the larger collection. So I had uh, I had worked with some of the bones for my dissertation, and then um, continued. And these are, these are the bones from the the sanctuary at Tel Dan or the temple at Tel Dan, right? Exactly, area, the temple area. Yep. Yep. Okay. And so I needed a, a place to house them. And uh, other than my basement, my <laughs> wife was quite happy to get them out of my basement. And <laughs> it was a little freaky when the kids uh, would have friends over and, and say, you know, oh, those are just the 50 bins of bones that my dad keeps in the basement. So, <laughs> Oh, you probably played it up, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, GRTS has been uh, very uh, gracious with providing a, a wonderful space for me uh, and some resources for equipment and a research assistant. And we've been able to make some uh, a lot of headway on the larger collection. And we've continued to work with the Tel Dan project and uh, finally have kind of made our way through a lot of the backlog uh, from the Biran excavations that started in the 60s and continued through the 90s. And then uh, we renewed the excavation in the, in the 2000s have been, and have been going for the last decade or so in kind of a new phase of excavation under, under David. 
So what prompted this new phase of excavation at at Tel Dan? Was it it simply that more squares needed to be opened up, or was it a a matter of new questions? Yeah, it's a a little bit of both. So it's um, new excavation teams will bring new questions. Uh, We have some really exciting things that that we're working on on now. Um, David uh, has partnered with Aaron Burke at UCLA on a larger project called Turning Points that looks at the transition between the Late Bronze Age and the Iron Age One. Um, We've got lots of material from this transition period. Uh, And Yafat has continued to work on uh, the Assyrian presence at Tel Dan and the larger uh, relationship to the clan system uh, throughout the region and some very exciting things that, that she's been doing. Uh, and then I have interest in the uh, cultic practices and the religion that's going on at, at Dan. Uh, and it's it's really it's the best example we've got, to my mind, of royal Israelite religion, Iron Age religion. I don't think that many of us grasp really what we have with uh, with Tel Dan. Well, um, that's a, a good segue because I wanted to ask you about your work at Tel Dan um, before we get to the behind the scenes book. Um, so, so for those who aren't familiar at all with with Dan and Tel Dan in particular, um, what's its significance from an archaeological and biblical point of view? Sure. Um, we we uh, read about it in the Bible, in um, in the book of Judges. We have kind of a, a shady origin story um, that places it as kind of a heterodox shrine where uh, the Danites leave the coastal plain and go north and take out a peaceful and unsuspecting people um, and introduce uh, a cult there with some kind of images. And then the story picks up again. Uh, oh, and then the punchline of the story is the, the high priest that serves there is a, a descendant of Moses. Uh, and then the... Uh, Oops. What's that? Yeah, that's embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, even have some text critical things where uh, there's a change to the name and different theories why uh, why that would be. Oh, interesting. Uh, the, the story picks up in in First Kings twelve um, with the division of the kingdom after uh, Solomon after the death of Solomon with Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south, and the text relates the. Uh, establishment of shrines at Dan and Bethel uh, that are intended to rival Jerusalem and also to kind of uh, reinvest these northern communities with epicenters of Yahwistic worship. Uh, And Jerusalem is very complicated archaeologically and politically, uh, so we're not really going to find anything there, even if there there are any remains, Iron Age temple yeah. remains. Um, you haven't gotten a permit to dig on the Temple Mount? <laughs> no. Um, and uh, Bethel, uh, perhaps under Beitin, some excavations that have been carried out there. Uh, so not a lot. We don't have evidence of a major shrine there, and that's interpreted in different ways. And some people argue if we've got the right site or not. So there's some major complications with Bethel. Uh, But Tel Dan 
we have rich archaeological remains, um, everything from the Neolithic to the, the Roman period, uh, exciting late Bronze Age finds, uh, of course, the famous Tel Dan Stella uh, from the 9th century that mentions the House of David and uh, relates to the story of the coup of Jehu, though in the, in the Stella it's likely attributed to Hazael. Uh, but then in uh, Area T, we have this uh, temple complex uh, that has, to my mind, many, many features that would suggest uh, that it's, it's very plausible to reconstruct this as, the, uh, as a temple of Yahweh in the, in the Iron Age. And, and what are some of the clues that point you in that direction? Well, there are architectural features that line up with the description of Solomon's temple in the Bible, uh, though the, the textual traditions surrounding Solomon's temple are very complicated and, and multi-layered, but there are some, a lot of architectural similarities. Uh, there's some epigraphic evidence, some seal impressions with Yahwistic names, uh, and then the two that I've worked on most directly are some some of the some of the evidence from artifacts and then the evidence from the animal bones. Uh, so with the artifacts, I think one that's uh, been the most exciting for me is a little collection of cultic implements that I like to call a um, an altar kit. It's <laughs> uh, found in the in the western chambers around a small altar that's roughly one meter by one meter. And uh, next to the altar was a sunken uh, clay pot with burned animal bones in it, and then a bronze bowl and a pair of iron shovels, and then a third shovel, and even an, another iron handle. And I think these can be coordinated to the elements of the altar kits that we read about in the biblical in the biblical text uh, that include. Uh, a pot for collecting the ashes, uh, an incense shovel, a pair of shovels for de-ashing, and then the one that I think is the most exciting is the bowl itself um, that would be identified as a as a Mizrach, which is the, the bowl for collecting the sacrificial blood. Uh, so, you know, you just don't get this thing where you you read a list in the text and then you dig it up in the ground in situ yeah. Uh, and so I, uh, I think that's quite exciting and it's not exclusively Yahwistic, but that's, uh, you know, blood manipulation is, is handled in a special way in the Israelite cult. Um, and the fact that these elements line up very closely with that description, uh, to my mind, is very exciting. Uh, then the other is the, the animal bone evidence. And when I started on the project, I have to admit, I kind of thought, you know, I'd find some, uh, you know, they're going to be sacrificing pigs or something. Because the, the way the story is portrayed in, in 1 Kings 12, it's very, um, not very favorable toward uh, <laughs> Jeroboam. And, uh, but what I found was quite the opposite, that uh, the animal bone remains actually line up very, very closely with uh, prescriptions that we find in the Pentateuch for sacrifice and for offering. Uh, and then I returned to the biblical text, started looking a little more carefully, and I found 
a lot of ambiguity in the way uh, that the uh, religion of Jeroboam is is described. And so I'll then then going to the prophets and and in particular the book of Amos and his critique of northern religion find that it it assumes orthodox practice you know mm. especially mm. in in chapter 5 where he goes through and kind of deconstructs uh, all of the orthodox elements of israelite worship well that assumes that they are they are doing the burn offerings and the grain offerings and the fellowship offerings and the hymns and the songs and uh but without justice uh Yahweh's very upset with them yeah so and and, and as i recall you also looked at the the movement of priests through the temple complex and how that is similar to what you have either in the temple or the um, probably in Leviticus, right? Is that where you, you kind of looked at similarities? That's right. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really fun. I like doing this um, when I go to the site. I have the privilege, um, my wife and I lead a ancient world of the Bible study uh, course through Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and uh, we'd get to do this every every year with students, and I love to go into the uh, the reconstruction of the sacred precinct there at Tel Dan, and you can walk through the movements of the priests as it's described in the in the priestly manual of Leviticus one through seven, and you can walk through it. Um, so you approach the altar, you go to the the right hand side to slaughter the animal. Um, and then continue the circumnavigation of the altar, and there there are architectural and artifactual features that line up with each each uh, station of the movement in this syntax of offering as you uh, proceed through the precinct. Yeah, so you have um, you have similar animals being sacrificed. You have um, potentially similar structure to the buildings, uh, the building itself. Then you have similar movements. So, um, so there are a lot of similarities between uh, what we assume went on at the temple and what you see at Tel Dan. Is there any way that that your study of Tel Dan then casts light back on the temple, other than sort of looking at similarities? Does it does it help you understand the temple practices better in in Jerusalem or, yeah? Yeah, it, sh- it sure does to my to my mind, and there are, not all will agree with me. And if we're if we're working purely with archaeological remains, uh, you know, this could be a temple to Hadad or some other Baal type type deity, um, because there are a lot of similarities as we understand them uh, between Phoenician, uh, so called Aramean, and Israelite uh, worship. Now. So what the argument I, I try to make is that the the uh, the accumulation of evidence from all of these different sources it's not it's not that you just have one voice if, you're, if we're arguing from archaeology alone I think there's a, a plausible case that can be made but when we combine that with the biblical evidence uh, I think Yahwistic worship is is uh, is the most probable uh, for yeah. sure. Uh, and then, so if if one's with me in that argument, it has uh, a, some pretty big implications, uh, particularly when we think of how priestly literature 
relates to actual practice. And this is this is a project I'm working on currently for for an academic monograph. Um, but the the kind of default position uh, from the old Wellhausian model is that the the priestly source is uh, late, often post-exilic. Some will push that a little into the late pre-exilic period, but post-exilic and and very much Jerusalem-centered. And I think it's a it's a bit more complicated than that. And I've started to see some things in the material remains of of Tel Dan um, that line up better than some of the material remains from southern contexts. So I, I think some of these priestly prescriptions that we have uh, are actually a, a combination of northern and there are northern and southern elements. So if you have kind of uh, uh, two centers of, of Yahwism, a northern Yahwism and a southern Yahwism, uh, I see the, the Pentateuch as, as we have it today representing elements from both of those both of those contexts. So yeah, I think it's it's hugely significant if this is indeed a, a Yahwistic temple. Yeah, great. Well, we'll await that uh, monograph. And uh, <laughs> um, so I want to shift gears and look, uh, talk about your, uh, the book that you edited with uh, John Hilber and John Walton, Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament, uh, the the Baker volume. And, and I just want to say that I, um, when I got the volume, because I contributed an essay, which I think was... Um, Probably, probably your favorite. You might not want to say it um, on record because you'd hurt the feelings of others. But, um, but anyway, we, so I got my volume. Uh, it's got sixty-six essays in it, and and um, a lot of times for collected, ed- edited volumes, you know, it's sort of hit or miss. Like you get you get w- one article out of three that you might want to read. Um, I started reading it, and and it was actually a page turner. Um, which I don't normally say for sort of survey type um, uh, collected volumes. Uh, so I, th- I thought it was really well done. So hats off to to all of you for putting this together, and and to have a volume of sixty six essays that's affordable. That's that's something else. You expect it to come out by Brill, which I know you published with them. So I don't want to um, for your, for your dissertation. But if it if it were published with them, it would probably be one hundred and seventy euros, <laughs> right? <laughs> so so this is actually really affordable. So um, highly recommend it uh, to people listening. Um, I, I think Onscript has become notorious for for bankrupting people for good causes. Um, but it's an investment in your future, your archaeological and historical contextual future. Um, so maybe you could just uh, outline real quick some of the the origins of this project and how how it came together. Sure. Well, I it really started in a in a class that I get to teach here uh, called Ancient World of of the Bible, and uh, I had this problem with textbooks and the, the, the problem wasn't that there weren't any textbooks. The problem was that I just needed so many to cover what I wanted to cover in the class. Uh, so there were, you know, I wanted to cover ancient Near Eastern texts. I wanted to cover historical geography, wanted to cover archeology, span wanted to cover, uh, ancient Near Eastern history, literature, all of these things. And so I'd end up piling on six or seven textbooks and I always try to 
keep my textbook required textbooks affordable for the students, and it was nearly impossible. So I had yeah. this dream of kind of um, a one-stop shop uh, introduction to the ancient world, and at one point had delusions that I might attempt something like this my, myself as a single-authored work. Um, but then I saw uh, Baker Academic put out this this volume, World of the New Testament, and that kind of sparked the idea in me, maybe an edited volume um, where I can get experts who know a lot more than I do about each of these individual topics to contribute to the larger whole and make a, a tight organizational structure that would that would that would work. And it, and I ended up adopting kind of the the structure of the course that I have. So oh. I called up uh, Baker, one of the advantages of being in, in Grand Rapids. You get to know all the local publishers yeah. here. And uh, Dave Nelson at, at Baker, I asked him if there was anything planned for an Old Testament counterpart to that volume. And he said, no, how about you want to do one? <laughs> so uh, I soon went down the hall to my, my colleague, John Hilber, and said, mm -hmm. this is way too big uh, for, for one person, kind of what, what I was dreaming up at this point. And he, he gladly jumped on board. And then uh, he knew John Walton. So John Walton joined us. And the three of us worked together at uh, first kind of solidifying the, the structure. And that, that, I think, gives some cohesion to the volume, is that we, we, actually, we had all the essays and the sections. That was all planned before we started pursuing uh, potential authors. And then we each had different spheres that we interacted with. Um, and so we were delightfully surprised that uh, most people said yes, and I think it's a great volume too. And it's, yeah. a, it's a great volume because we have great people including the monotheism mm. essay by Matt Lynch. Yeah. Well, um, you know, but... <laughs> do, do, you, do you think it was a, uh, would you say that that essay was a, a 10 out of 10 or the best essay in the volume? Which would you? <laughs> 11 out of 10, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. No, I, th I think it's great. I, and you, so you use this dramatic metaphor um, or drama metaphor in the books. So you have the elements of the drama. So you have like the stage, the scripts, uh, the frames, uh, the acts and scenes uh, of the drama, themes, you know, like God, family, sustenance, and governance. Um, so it's a nice, nicely put together uh, book. Um, and and what I wanted to do, I, normally I do a speed round with with guests. Um, that's sort of a break from the main interview. But instead, I thought we would go through. We're not going to hit all sixty six essays, um, which would be a bit long. And uh, but but I thought we could we could hit some of the topics that come up that probably come up for our listeners as well. Some of this stuff will be new, um, and we could go through and you could give sort of a soundbite on them, and then with the with the understanding that there are a lot of footnotes you'd want to put around that. Sure. Does that sound good? <laughs> yeah, nuance <laughs> is the name of the game with uh, most of these things. <laughs> I know. Well, that's you know, I always say academic anxieties come out in footnotes. You know, we we want to we want to cover ourselves, and so we we just add lots of footnotes. Um, okay, so what in a nutshell do? Um, oh, I already asked that more or less because we talked about. Oh no no let, let me ask this one. So uh, most of our listeners won't have any experience with archaeology. So 
what is it exactly that archaeologists do? Sure. Um, well, we recover and examine and interpret uh, material remains from humankind's past. So those are kind of the three elements. So we dig stuff up, um, we recover it, we examine it, we look at it very closely, measure it, compare it to other things, and then we, we seek to interpret um, how it functions in a particular culture and society. We, we look at change between uh, different uh, periods of time um, and cultures that are uh, at the same time, how they might differ from one, one another, try to reconstruct everyday activities. Uh, we can speculate on cognitive dimensions, what people are thinking, religion, etc., so it's basically glorified dumpster diving. Look through people's <laughs> trash and try to figure out things about them. <laughs> and, and proportionally, what time, what amount of your time is spent uh, washing and labeling pottery? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> how, how, many, how many years of your life have you and bones? I guess for you, uh, have you spent doing that? Um, A lot. <laughs> now, now you, you you said a little phrase in there that that might pass us by, but I want to. Uh, sit on it for a minute, and that is uh, everyday life. Now, for some people, their their vision of archaeology is trying to go for, like, some, you know, you want to find the golden calf or the ark or some, the big stuff. Um, is that what archaeology, now, that's quite different than, you know, maybe a popular perception, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, and that's hardly ever the case. Do we find uh, treasures? You know, that that does happen. Um, but we're we're... You know, it's in many universities, archaeology is a branch of anthropology. We're, we're trying to figure out people. These people just happen to be dead for a long time. So trying to figure out how they lived and uh, understand um, elements of, of history. That's one branch of, of archaeology. Um, and then and then culture, that's another another branch. Yeah, and, and there are all sorts of uh, sort of sub-branches of archaeology as well, aren't there? Like... Uh, paleobotany, and um, there was one in there in the book that I, I hadn't even heard of before. I can't remember the name of it, but it's studying earthquakes from the ancient world. Yeah, seismology. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So ancient. What is it? Archaeo seismology, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, what are the, some of the exciting happenings in archaeology today, like in, in Israel specifically? I think it's a lot of uh, what we've just been talking about. So, there's. It's not that. The, the kind of uh, big finds are minimized, but there is an increasing understanding of kind of a broader view of archaeology, you know, and, and that relates to shifts in, in culture that I think are very uh, healthy that move away from kind of uh, dominant elite agendas to considering how regular folk lived as well and giving voice to marginalized voices too. It's been a lot with uh, gender, for, in for instance, in archaeology. Hmm. Um, okay, so on to geography. Um, so for, for a lot of people, geography sort of conjures up images of maps and, and place names that they have to memorize. And, and so, um, but I think, you know, we can do better than that. So, so what are... Um, what are some of your top tips for spicing up your biblical geography life? 
<laughs> well, you could you could read the uh, the essays on historical geography in um, in the behind the scenes volume. Yeah, and, uh, and where will they take you? Well, they'll probably take you to want to get a hold of an atlas with some more uh, detailed maps. But I, I I think most people don't appreciate the geographic diversity that's in such a small region. Uh, so I'm now in Michigan, and I always like to use analogies that people in whatever geographic setting I'm teaching in can understand. And, you know, this, this whole land is roughly half the size of the upper peninsula of Michigan, you know, or when I was on the East Coast, you know, it's the size of New Jersey or something. You know, these, these are tiny, tiny lands, but incredible diversity. But without the rich cultural heritage of New Jersey. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, the, uh, the geographic extremes are, are yeah. pretty incredible from the, the summit of Mount Hermon over 9,000 feet uh, to the surface of the, the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below sea level. Um, dry and hot in the south, uh, wet and sometimes cold in the, in the north. And then the longitudinal variation uh, of the coastal plain to the hill country, to the Rift Valley, to the Transjordanian Plateau. And then the, the function of some of these buffer, buffer zones like the Shefela. And when, once you get in the land and walk the land and walk the routes, as, as you well know, uh, this, the, the stories come alive in a, in a new way. Uh, the land hasn't changed all that much. You know, hmm. you can still um, see the past that goes uh, by Megiddo that hmm. Tutmose went through uh, hmm. and where Josiah uh, met his end in the in the Valley of Jezreel and so on and so forth. So these are, are places that you can put on a map and they can help you understand and, and read the Bible with with new eyes you know when we in a north american setting we think of wilderness and we might think of a forest uh, rather than a rocky barren uh, barren setting hmm. or yeah. underestimate the importance of water you know when we can just go turn on a tap uh, very very different when we understand the geography of the ancient world yeah shout out to all of you in arizona um so i i think uh you know Back to geographical and topographical diversity, um, I thought the the essay on flora and fauna was really interesting on that front where it, there was a little statistic in there that Israel has um, more families of of mammals and birds than Europe does, <laughs> than all of Europe. Yeah. Um, and, and so I don't know, I'm, I don't know if that, carries on into species as well but the the number of families of mammals and and birds is more diverse than in all of europe uh which is which is really significant okay um so i want to get one thing yeah. on that too i think that's just an illustration you know this this region's called by the the folks at juc the land between you know this land between geographic features of the sea and the and the desert 
but it's the land between the superpowers, the, the cradles of civilization in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. So this little tiny land is this crossroads for humans and animals uh, as, as long oh, yeah. as we've been on the planet. Uh, so you get a lot of rich diversity and you get a lot of uh, collision, cultural collision. And I think that's part of the exciting thing of viewing uh, the cradle of the Bible as this uh, this transitional land between continents, between cultures, uh, between epochs of time. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, and also it impacts how you read the Bible in terms of if it was a place that was constantly trampled by the superpowers to get to each other, then that gives you perspective on, that gives you an angle on the perspective from which the Bible was written. Exactly. You know, it, it was by a people who were constantly trampled and run over. Um, so, um, all right. So, an, another thing I, I wanted to ask you about was particular archaeologists. Um, I, I, and two in particular I wanted to ask you about. One is um, Aaron Mayer. Do you say Mayer or Meyer? Yeah, Mayer. Mm-hmm. Mayer. Um, and then Avi Faust. And I, I think I remember back to JC, you said that Aaron Mayer is someone that you really admire in terms of how he does archaeology. And so I'd just be curious of what you like about the way he goes about um, his archaeological projects. Sure. Yeah. So he's the director at uh, Tel Asafi, uh, which most would identify now as Biblical Gath, thanks to his, uh, his research. And there are a few things that I think are really exciting about his methodology. Uh, he's one of some others who, who does try to integrate texts and archaeology uh, and to be critical in his evaluation of both. So we we find sometimes in this mix of text and archaeology, you have textual scholars who will be uh, quite dismissive of archaeology and just you know grab one find and not understand the the complexities and nuance of how archaeology works and what we actually can and can't say with archaeology. Um, and then on the other side, you'll have archaeologists who will. Uh, to my to my mind, be more confident in their findings than than the data allow, uh, and be very dismissive of textual traditions in the Bible. Uh, and so, Aaron, uh, in in what I've seen, he tries to deal even handedly with both, and also recognizes that he is first and foremost an archaeologist, and he seeks collaboration. Uh, like few others in the field. If you look at his publications, they're often multi-authored, um, and collaboration is the, the name of the game with increasing specialization uh, today. So incorporates a lot of people, and then he's also pioneered, uh, along with others, Israel Finkelstein for sure, uh, some of the scientific measures uh, in archaeology that are uh, kind of cutting-edge uh, he's brought a lot of those into his excavation. And and uh, a name that I saw come up a lot in the book was Avi Faust, uh, particularly, particularly, I guess, for his, his survey studies, right? Is that where he's had his biggest impact, or why, why do you think um, he comes up so frequently? Yeah, he, he's done a lot of macro-level uh, engagement, just looking at the bigger questions and very much— Is that pretty rare? Uh, it is in the way that he does it, uh, okay. and he he 
comes at it a lot from anthropological models. Uh, and I also is, he, he's incredibly creative in his ideas and, and also seeks to kind of broker a synthesis between text and, and archaeology. Uh, and I, I, even if I don't agree with, well, I mean, none of us agree a hundred percent with anyone, even ourselves. <laughs> we disagree with ourselves. But um, I love uh, the way that both both uh, um, Aaron and Avi and and many others uh, strive to to responsibly integrate text and archaeology. Um, a, a few essays touched on historical questions around Israel's em, uh, emergence or arrival in the land of Canaan. Um, wh- what's the state of the field on whether there's evidence for a large-scale population influx from outside the land? And here I'm talking about, you know, as you would maybe see in the book of Joshua, um, and whether there was multiple battles that coincided with that arrival Um of a group in the in into Canaan or perhaps emergence from within. Sure, yeah. So most people have abandoned a, a conquest model in the in the form that it was in earlier generations, uh, and that even a, a careful reading of the Bible will highlight tensions between the Book of Joshua and Judges. So even in the biblical portrayal, I think one would need to be a little more nuanced in how one understands um, the settlement period. Um, From an archaeological perspective, most would probably fall now in the uh, camp identified as emergence, that ancient Israel emerged from the peoples of the Levant. Um, And some would see them as having outside elements. Uh, Some speak of exodai instead of an exodus, so you have a series of Semitic uh, runaway enslaved peoples who came from Egypt and uh, shared their vision of, of Yahweh with a mixed multitude. And then you have, have Israel. Uh, some of the, the arguments, to my mind, uh, that are used to argue against outside people coming in are not, um, I think, more is made of them than, than we should. One a big one is the continuity of material culture. So there is continuity of material culture between the late Bronze Age and the Iron Age, right at this transition period. And, and just to, just to pause on that real quick, so that would mean that because there's continuity within the land of Canaan, that it doesn't seem like an outside group came in. So that would that would be a, a kind of mark against uh, an infiltration model, right? That's how it's interpreted by some. Yeah. And, the, and the piece is nobody would argue that there's a population explosion and that that population explosion indicates uh, some kind of social change. So the question is, are, are these uh, nomadic peoples that are all of a sudden settling down mm-hmm. or are these uh, people from outside who are coming in? But the, the material culture question, um, I, I wouldn't expect, even if they are outsiders, as the, the, the Bible describes, they are outsiders who were previously insiders just a few generations before. And if we go to an earlier time period, that of the, the Hyksos period uh, in, in Egypt, and they're 
occupation of the Eastern Delta, we find that they there are many elements of Semitic material culture that maintained even as they adapted to many elements of Egyptian culture. Uh, so I don't I don't find that argument as strong. Um, what I think is uh, is difficult to understand with the the biblical portrayal would be the the massive numbers of people that uh, mm-hmm. are are described if those numbers are taken literally in the Bible. That's certainly certainly problematic. Um, but I think a lot of the the way the stories are told, uh, people are not as uh, you know both sides of the debate are not really grappling with the fundamental question of, of genre. W- what exactly is being, uh, is being described in these biblical books and how does that relate to the way we do history? So we do history as moderns in a, in a very different way than ancient peoples did history. So I think genre is an important missing component of many of these uh, debates about the settlement of, of Israel in the land. Hmm. Um, and then I think historically, um, we the Merenptah Stella or Merneptah Stella is, is of crucial importance. Um, and wherever one falls in the debate, um, one must reckon with the uh, population explosion and the Merenptah Stella, which mentions uh, Israel as a people um, mm-hmm. in in the land. And I think the timing of it is also also significant. So if you if you step back from uh, the biblical question and just look at the larger geopolitical situation of the Levant, you have this collapse of the late Bronze Age superpower system, and you have all of these smaller um, what will become, uh, kingdoms kind of scrambling for the pieces. So if you've got a kingdom that happens to sit in this land between right on the major trade routes, that would allow them to uh, charge <laughs> for toll booths and hotels and uh, pit stops, and they could become very wealthy very quickly. And uh, this this fits very well with the, the broad picture of history that's portrayed in the Bible. Oh, and, and where? Sorry, where are they located in that um, Stella? So, oh, we're, in we're, the so, in the southern Levant. So, so we, the, yeah, and we have we have several uh, city states that are mentioned, and then that's also a significant element of the uh, of the Stella's the spelling of the name Israel, in that um, the Egyptian language, like Akkadian, uh, will use determinatives to indicate something about the word that they're describing. So in Akkadian comes at the beginning of the word and in Egyptian comes at the end of the word. And the determinatives that are used in in the spelling of of Israel uh, indicate that these are an unsettled people group uh, as opposed to a a city-state like Ashkelon that's also mentioned in the inscription. Hmm. Uh, okay. Well, then, um, next question: What evidence is there for or against early literacy um, in ancient Israel, or widespread literacy, I should say? Um, and connected to that, but not the same, is is a question of whether there was a, a sufficient kind of uh, whether there was sufficient infrastructure to sustain a scribal uh, culture 
that could create something like uh, the Bible um, in, you know, whatever form that might have been uh, at, at an early point. I know that's, that's you know, it's a very open-ended question, but it's, it's around this whole question of literacy and um, scribal culture. Yeah, and, and one that's uh, fraught with many difficulties of <laughs> uh, history and archaeology and one with uh, lots of different opinions on. But I, yeah. I've um, been influenced by the arguments made by uh, Chris Ralston and others that there, there are some, there's some good evidence for, uh, based on comparative materials from Phoenicia, for example, for uh, literacy that would have been confined to a scribal elite, um, but around the, the turn of the millennium. So even in the 10th century, even though writing's not widespread uh, among the elite still until the 7th century. Uh, but again, I think if, you, if we step back and, and look at the, the, the collapse of the Late Bronze Age superstructure, you've got, as we've got evidence in the Amarna period, uh, we have thriving scribal culture uh, throughout the region that uh, was part of the maintenance of these power dynamics of these late Bronze Age peoples. So when the collapse happens around about 1200... Uh, so we're talking time of time of the judges. Yeah, well, depending yeah. on one's, uh, yeah. one's chronology, either the, the yeah. period when Israel is coming into the land or emerging, or the period after that and the period of the judges. And of course, there may be overlap there as well. But this this, let's say this formative period of ancient Israel... Uh, corresponds with this transition between the Late Bronze and Iron Age. Well, where did all the scribes go? You know, they didn't all die with the collapse of the Late Bronze Age system. And then you have the invention of the alphabet, um, you know, a few centuries before, but really uh, coming at this transition point as well. And the, the power of the alphabet that could uh, democratize scribal culture in a, in a different sort of way. You don't have to learn hundreds of signs like you would for mm. Akkadian or Egyptian. You can learn uh, 29 characters uh, for Ugaritic or 30. Um, you, you, you've got uh, this, this power of language that can be utilized in, in a new way. You've got scribal apparatus left over from the late Bronze Age, and then you have uh, a people group that's being formed and identified as Israel in the um, Stella, and you've got a population growth. So I, I see all of these painting a, a very plausible backdrop for uh, an early version of the Bible that would correspond uh, to the, the early monarchy. And of course, pulling in some elements to, to my mind, uh, particularly in epic uh, poetic forms and also some legal traditions that would go stem back to the late Bronze Age uh, and then really taking shape in the the part of the monarchy, uh, especially with Hezekiah and Josiah. Um, but that's not to, to say that the editing of these texts wouldn't have continued into the Persian period and even for some the Hellenistic period. So uh, the the Bible's complex book produced over a long period of time, um, but I would I would place it on a, a trajectory uh, that's very much related to the collapse of the the late Bronze Age superpower system. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, 
Now, Judean pillar figurines. Um, so do you want to just explain briefly what they are and your theory on how they functioned? <laughs> and, and and why this is such a big you know, topic in archaeology. <laughs> sure. So I've not um, per, my, myself done any uh, focused research on the, the so-called JPFs. Uh, we do have a few at Tel Dan. Um, they're, they're certainly related to, or, or what they are. So they're, they're small uh, clay figurines uh, with the head of a woman, uh, breasts, and sometimes with hands cupped around the breasts, uh, other times with an infant. They're often accompanied by um, what have been interpreted as male figures on uh, horses, horse and rider uh, and were they toys? Were they votives? Were they goddesses? And lots of debates around these things that I'm not uh, I'm not engaged in on the forefront, but have have followed the arguments. Um, they're certainly, to my mind, not toys, and uh, they are associated, I think, rightly with with Iron Age Israelite religion. Um, they may be related to kind of a local manifestation of kind of a response to Assyria. There's a nice paper by Ian Wilson on that recently. Um, I, I think they may function in a votive way. Uh, Zioni Zevic called them prayers in clay. Uh, I think they certainly expanded beyond just women, as uh, Aaron Darby has, has pointed out. Um, the, the big question you know, that's touched on already by uh, Roz Kletter and, and others um, is the this question of their relationship between uh, Asherah uh, as, a, as a mother goddess in ancient Israel. And I think here we should maybe be a little more cautious on both extremes. Uh, so there, there's certainly something going on with, with Asherah in the, in the Bible. Um, and then in material culture, important inscriptions from Kintilat Ajrud and uh, Kirbet al Qom, and also the, the Tanakh cult stand, though it doesn't have an inscription, but may have iconography that's associated with Yahweh and with Asherah. Uh, so there, there's something going on, um, but the question is, is Asherah an object or a specific deity or uh, is it singular? You know, in the Bible, most of the time it's plural. Um, so I think we don't want to say, yes, this is equivalent to the goddess Asherah that we know from late Bronze Age Ugarit. Um, so that we want to avoid that extreme, but we will also want to avoid the extreme and think there there's no relation to uh, mother goddess worship that has deep roots into the late Bronze Age and before. Um, and I kind of wonder sometimes, especially with some of the, the problems with the inscriptions that have uh, a predominant suffix on a, on a personal name, Yahweh and his Asherah, mm -hmm. if maybe these are uh, abstractions of a deity or a deity that may have multiple manifestations and that mm -hmm. we're kind of oversimplifying the options at our disposal. Um, I'm often reminded in our modern context of the Christmas tree. 
Um, I'm a Christian, but I put up a Christmas tree in my living room. <laughs> well, the, the Christmas tree certainly is rooted in pagan mother goddess uh, worship. But that, that symbol has lost that meaning in our present cultural context. Not for uh, everyone. Not to everyone. So we'll start an anti-Christmas tree cam- campaign. Um, so, and the ancients are no less capable of abstraction and of uh, understanding the function of symbols in different ways. Uh, what is clear is that from the, the biblical perspective, there was, there was a problem, however that problem was perceived, uh, and that there were different opinions on this within ancient Israel. Otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, the biblical record that's uh, condemning the Asherahs, however mm-hmm. they may be understood. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, you know, when we find the, these sorts of things like the inscriptions, archaeologically, some people say, you know, see, ancient Israel wasn't uh, uh, orthodox all the time. Well, of course not. Read the Bible. There, <laughs> it's a minority opinion. <laughs> um, it just said, what idea in biblical studies needs to die? Huh. Um, I think uh, an idea of simplicity. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there, there's uh, the idea, uh, wherever you place it on whatever spectrum, uh, that things might be simple. You know, take at one extreme um, you know, authorship of biblical books or something, whether it's interpreted simply as a single author or whether it's interpreted simply as uh, very clear redactional stages. Um, the Bible is an ancient book, and it's r- composed through ancient scribal practices, and those are those are not modern practices. Um, their understandings of genre do not necessarily correspond with our uh, tight definitions of genre. So I think um, an idea of simplicity uh, needs to be questioned from from both extremes. How does your study of archaeology relate to your uh, faith? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a funny one. So I'm uh, a confessional scholar working in a confessional institution, but I also uh, interact with the academy and go to professional conferences and uh, present papers and the like. Um, and so I, I wrestle with this uh, this question a lot. And I, I love teaching in a seminary and bringing some of these uh, complexities to the students and uh, learning from the students, being challenged by the students for the, the so what question. You know, most of my research works on uh, the behind-the-text aspect of the interpretation process or the in-the-text uh, when I teach exegesis courses, uh, literature-based. Uh, but there's also the in-front-of-the-text question. What is it? The, the so what? Well, how, does this really, how does this really matter for people of faith today? And I, I find that when all of those, uh, when, we, when we rightly understand the, the world behind the text that will inform the way that we understand its relevance today and that it's actually a lot more relevant than most people think. Um, There are 
great concern for for justice, um, critique of oppressive powers, uh, for liberation. Wonder, wonderful things that are that are in the text that we don't need to uh, invent in the text. They're in there when we understand this ancient world. Um, but as uh, the confessional scholar, it's interesting in the academy that there's. I, I face suspicion on uh, both sides of the equation. So some of my non-confessional colleagues may be suspicious that I've got some kind of uh, a, apologetic agenda or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of my uh, confessional colleagues might be suspicious that I've, I've uh, sold out to the historical critical method or some, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I, I like holding these, these two aspects in tension. And, um, my, my father told me when I was, a when I was beginning to think critically as a junior high kid, he said, you know, if it's true, you don't have anything to be afraid of, you know, just embrace the, the whole of learning and, uh, don't be afraid to say you don't know. And so the, the way I teach it in my classes is that, archaeology, ancient Near Eastern studies, the way it can relate to the Bible or our understanding of the Bible in kind of three ways. So I'm building off of paradigms that others have developed and mm-hmm. added some of my own edits. But there, you know, there's the one, one way it can function is that there's a convergence, uh, to use Deaver's words, or uh, confirmation where we dig something up or we understand something in an ancient text that then uh, really seems to fit with what we read in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, recently there were a couple of uh, bulli found, Hukul's son of Shomiah and Gedaliah, son of Pashur in the Jerusalem excavations. Ah, here we go. Yeah. Jeremiah 37 and 38. These are yeah. officials from Judah who uh, threw Jeremiah in a cistern. There you go. We've got their Mm -hmm. names. You know, the finger Mm -hmm. that sealed that is, you know, shook the hand of Jeremiah. That's pretty exciting. These are confirmation or or convergence. Uh, And then the, so the second way they can relate is that of clarity. We can understand something about everyday life, Um, the importance of water by looking at cisterns or biblical metaphors that relate to to cisterns uh, or water. We have uh, clay liver models that have been discovered that may explain why Israel was commanded to burn the liver in, in Leviticus. So, you know, wonderful examples of clarifying our understanding of the Bible. But many people in, in faith contexts stop with those those first two C's, and uh, don't move on to the third C of complication. <laughs> That's when we, we dig something up or we don't dig something up and it doesn't fit with how we understand yeah. the Bible. There's, there's conflict with how we understand the Bible. And so some people pretend that those don't exist or um, worse, you'll have some. I, I hope it's well-intentioned, but we'll, who will even be dishonest with the evidence um, Larry Steger used to call this, uh, arc eology, A-R-K eology, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, how, how many times has the, uh, 
the uh, Noah's Ark been found or the Lost Ark or, you know, Holy yeah. Grail type. You know, it's basically Indiana Jones with a with an apologetic agenda or mm -hmm. Nephilim burials. One of one of my favorites. You can find many photoshopped. Uh, yeah. Giant. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot of people send you links to YouTube videos. That's right. I don't know how many chariot wheels I've seen at the bottom of the Red Sea. Um, so, <laughs> so this is, you know, first of all, it's flat out uh, dishonest uh, and not helpful and continues to kind of feed uh, stereotypes of, um, of ignorance and uncritical and dishonest uh, attempts at integrating the Bible and archaeology. But I'm, I'm quite happy with the complications. Um, I, I, it used to maybe keep me up at night, but now I, I actually um, appreciate it because it reminds me and, and keeps me humble um, that I don't have everything figured out, hardly. Uh, and especially when we move into the, the faith realm, there's something of uh, the mystery that's been lost when we have everything explained. So, I'm quite happy to live in that tension and, and to admit when things don't don't fit and then to keep digging on them. Uh, sometimes it's solved by a reevaluation of archaeology and sometimes uh, we've got misunderstandings of the Bible or how the Bible is is functioning as it pertains to history. Uh, so I encourage my my students to embrace not only, uh, the convergence and the clarity, but also uh, the complications. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And as a reminder to our listeners, we've been talking, among other things, about this book, Behind the Scenes of the Old Testament, uh, published by Baker Academic in 2018. So thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.